This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today's program is being taped, so we are not taking any live questions. It's a new program. It's not a best of, uh, but um, I will be on the road, so we decided to tape a program and we have a few guests. Uh, one guest is going to be an interview I taped with Father Rick Frechette. As many of you know, Father Frechette is a passionist priest, a Catholic priest in Haiti, who I just spent some time with in February, and got him to talk a little bit about the progress being made at the St. Luke Hospital in Haiti, where I volunteer, and many neurologists now volunteer in Haiti. So we're going to hear from Father Rick Frechette. And then in the second half of our program, I have an interview that I've done with Dr. Vernon Williams. Dr. Williams is a neurologist who specializes in sports neurology, much like myself. But he actually did a fellowship in pain management and has some interesting new techniques on the management of pain, specifically those that do not use opioids. So we're going to chat with him a little bit. This day in medicine, March 7th, 1792, Sir Thomas Watson was born. Now, Sir Thomas Watson was a physician in Scotland. And in 1843, he is the person who suggested the use of rubber gloves in surgery. Something pretty simple, but once again, one of those things we use today. Now, we don't use rubber gloves. They used to use rubber gloves and powder them. And then we evolved, right? We went to more vinyl gloves, again, with powder all over the place. Now we use primarily latex gloves that are much better to use. Uh, you get much better feel from them, and you don't have powder all over the place. Uh, he also is the physician who first described the water hammer pulse. That's when you feel someone's pulse that rises in intensity and then drops off suddenly. It is a sign of aortic regurgitation, and he described that back in the 1800s. In fact, in 1827, Dr. Watson became a professor of forensic medicine, something that has really become a very popular area of specialization. Uh, many young people get into uh, forensics and the study of crime and how crimes were committed, and Many folks just watch forensic files. So with that, it's a very interesting career for Sir Thomas Watson, um, a Scottish physician. I wanted to talk a little bit about falls in the elderly. In the New England Journal of Medicine uh, this year, in February, they actually looked at falling in older adults. One in four Americans aged 65 and over will fall each year. 29% of athletes of athletes of older people living in a community dwelling meaning whether it be a skilled nursing facility or adult facility of some type will have a fall 
Now, falls are the leading cause of fatal injury and the most common cause of non-fatal trauma that brings somebody to an emergency department when you look at older adults. So falls are a big problem from a health standpoint and from a cost standpoint when you look at Medicare trying to support people. We believe that the total cost just in 2015 was $50 billion. It's a lot of money spent just related to falls. So why do people fall? Well, it's multifactorial. There are a lot of issues. A lot of it is, as we get older, our ability to keep our balance diminishes. The other thing is medications. Many of the medications people take these days will cause them to become lightheaded or lose their balance. People develop gait problems, difficulties with walking, especially people with Parkinson's disease. And there's always cognitive impairment, the lack of awareness of what's going on and your surroundings that will add to a fall. So what are the avoidable factors? Well, you could improve your balance. It's something that can be worked on. And that's why we often recommend yoga in elderly people. Okay, people always think when it comes to yoga, you've got to be able to do all this double-jointed maneuvers. You don't. A lot of it is based on just trying to restore your balance. So working on balance exercises has been a big help, and that was part of this article in the New England Journal of Medicine. Also, the use of assistive devices, a cane or a walker. And it doesn't have to be permanent. It could be temporary while you're on a certain medication. You may not be feeling well or just not feeling well that day where you you're feel like your balance is impaired. You know, use the cane. A lot of folks, you know, just don't want to use it. They don't want this perception that they're impaired. But believe me, it's a lot better than falling, breaking a hip, or doing some permanent neurologic damage. One of the other topics I wanted to talk about today is dietary intermittent fasting. Now, when I read this article in the New England Journal, when I saw the title, the first thing I said was, wow, they're going to come down hard on this because there can't be anything good about fasting. And I found out it was just the opposite. Um, the article really looked at the history of intermittent fasting. It was really in 1997 with the original articles that they talked about animals who fast had this decreased production of free radicals. Now, free radicals, we know, are things that can cause harm, especially neurologically. So basically, with the idea of intermittent fasting, there's a metabolic switch that switches over from liver-derived glucose to adipose cell, fat cell-derived ketones. So intermittent fasting has actually been very helpful in treating illnesses like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and neurodegenerative diseases. Now, this doesn't mean you need to stop eating. What it means is timing when you eat. So rather than talk about fasting, the article talks more about feeding times, where you will feed only for a period of 10 hours a day over five days a week. And there's a whole regimen to doing this under the guidance of a physician. And in doing so, it really shifts 
how we burn calories. And that's what we find has helped from people's overall health. Um, Soon, and in this article they talked about, we're going to have facilities where we have experts in diet, nutrition, exercise, um, and psychology to really help us get to better health. So the concept of intermittent fasting you know, carries with it this connotation that it may be bad, but overall, intermittent fasting has been tremendous in terms of improving the health of adults. So it's something that we're going to follow here and see how people uh, improve and, and how it affects people's health. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my taped interview with Father Rick Frechette. Uh, which was done in Haiti in February. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Vernon Williams. Once again, we are not taking phone calls today. This is a taped program. But you are listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I'm in Port-au-Prince, Haiti at... St. Damien Hospital in the office of Father Rick Frechette. As many of our regular listeners know, uh, I try to make uh, trips down here to work with uh, Father Rick. And on my last day, which is today, February 5th, 2020, uh, we are discussing kind of the state of Haiti. Father, how are you? Very good, Tony. Uh, And good morning to all your listeners. Uh, Father, in the United States, we hear certain things about Haiti, um, but we don't know exactly what is going on in Haiti. We hear a lot about unrest and and, and murders, and then we hear nothing for a long period of time. So uh, I'd like you to possibly share with my listeners what's going on in Haiti and um, how it has affected things here. We're going into, uh, towards our second year, really, of social upheaval and chaos related to a lot of the politics and stolen money and uh, factions and rivalry between different sectors of the government and society which have been enormously difficult for the people Uh, gourd the gourd the haitian currency keeps devaluing it's lost more than half its value over the last few years Inflation stays at 20%, so people need more money to buy less, and they have less money to buy it with, and uh, things are very difficult. So it's a, t- it's a very, very trying time for the past uh, almost two years with months. We've had months of a completely locked country, uh, nothing open, nothing moving, dangerous streets. Uh, it's let up a little bit now, but the there are no solutions yet to the problems that cause it. Let's talk a little bit about the dangers, Father. I mean, when we come here now, we're hearing about kidnappings are becoming back in vogue. I mean, uh, it, it used to be years ago, 20, 30 years ago, we'd hear more about it. But is that always been going on? Is that recently uh, increased? Uh, it died down quite a bit from from the last big instances of kidnapping, but it's uh, resurged. Uh, uh, You know, the guess is at least 15 cases a day here in Port-au-Prince. That's the guess. 
nobody is exempt, not the poor, not the wealthy, not the priest, nobody is exempt. It seems that they're much better organized. People that have college degree even organizing these things. Uh, professional instruments of torture are, are reported by people who have gotten out because of paid ransom. Uh, it's, it's incredibly uh, disruptive, incredibly disruptive on top of all the other problems of the country. Well, you bring up an interesting subject when you said that no one is immune. And I guess we, we never think of Catholic priests and nuns being kidnapped, um, especially in a country only uh, right off the shore of the United States. I mean, we live in the United States, I think, a somewhat insular life. But uh, why is that? Why, why the Catholic Church? I mean, the Catholic Church has had uh, such an important role in... Haiti's development over the years? Why the attacks against Catholicism? Uh, like in every other country, the involvement of the Catholic Church is under a lot of scrutiny. Uh, you know, here as well as in the United States, the Catholic Church were slaveholders. Uh, there, there have been uh, altar throne alliances here. Catholic religion is still the state religion. So it's very easy when the politics are going wrong for the Catholic Church to be very poorly judged at the same time because the Catholic Church is so much part of the history and the politics. That's, that's just the way it is around the world. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's evidence that the Catholic Church is targeted with kidnappings. It's more the point that nuns and priests are not immune to kidnapping, and that was the, the situation last time. In the last big time of kidnapping, myself and my team, we were able, just because of a lot of contacts in the poor areas, to release a lot of kidnapped people over three years, about 80 or so, and a good dozen of those were priests and nuns. Uh, we, we absolutely don't have that ability anymore because it's not the, the street level anymore how, how kidnappings are being organized or where people are being held so so it's not it's at this point it's not uh it's not right to say the catholic church is targeted it's better to say once again the catholic church is not exempt father let's talk about saint luke and saint damien the hospitals here uh always growing <clears throat> always gets busier um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the projects you've been working on here and, and really how the donated funds are used? Uh, we're like the salamander that has to keep changing the color according to the environment because uh, just before all these big problems start, started, the international organization that does trauma and has been here since the earthquake uh, decided they had spent enough time here and they left. And that meant, since they used to be just some blocks from here, it meant that we were immediately getting all the trauma cases. The severe accidents, severe beatings, uh, gunshot injuries, you name it, they were suddenly at our gate. So over the past two years, we've had to really ramp up to learn uh, to get really skilled at stabilizing uh, grotesque trauma immediately 
in order to try to find how we could uh, use other other resources in the country to do follow-up because we don't have all those branches of medicine and and staffs to to help them. Uh, similarly, uh, hunger in the country is very widespread. Uh, so we're seeing more malnutrition all of a sudden, both in the, among children and among adults. The, the country being paralyzed had stalled out a lot of other hospitals in the country and nearly closed them. And we, we were involved in a lot of hospital rescue during those months, trying to get things by boat and negotiating through... Uh, intersections loaded with criminals and bandits in order to beg to get this stuff through. But it all takes its toll when, when other places have run out of their supplies and we're still functioning, then, then uh, we, we get a lot of the burden of the people who are already burdened terribly with uh, terrible sickness. So. It's, it's, never, it's never just a straight story. It changes all the time with what's changing around us. We're delighted that that international organization returned two months ago. Uh, that takes a huge, huge, huge stress off of us. And, and now we can try to revert to focusing on developing the things we were already doing well. Father, uh, what do you see as the future? I, I mean, I always try to ask you this in terms of which way are we moving here in Haiti? Is it, is it ever going to be a stable place? Um, is it ever going to uh, grow and, and become more stable? Uh, I'll make a good comparison, the United States of America. It uh, doesn't matter what side of the opinion you're on, but a polarized nation is not going anywhere. This Haiti has been polarized for a long time now. Uh, look how difficult it is to get out of polarization in our own country, in the United States of America. A polarized nation is not going anywhere. So uh, the, the way forward is to unite. And how to do that, your guess is as good as mine. Father, thank you. Thank you for everything you do here, and thank you for your time. Um, I, I want to remind people um, that if you wish to donate to this cause, and I can justify and tell you that every penny is used for the people and gets to where it's going, it's St. Luke for Haiti.org. Is that correct, Father? St. Luke Haiti.org. S T L U K E H A I T H A I T I.org. Father, thank you. Thank you for your time. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's my great pleasure to welcome my guest, Dr. Vernon Williams. Dr. Williams is the director for the Center for Sports Neurology and Pain Medicine at the Curl and Job Orthopedic Center in Los Angeles. Vern, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me. Good to uh, talk to you. Well, let's chat a little bit. You know, we, we met recently when I was out in Los Angeles, and, and we got to talking a, a lot about pain medicine and the treatment of pain and how much that has really evolved. And 
you know, some of the things we're reading about, uh, there have been a lot of articles about spinal stimulation and use of a lot of different stimulators. Can you can you talk to our listeners a little bit about these uh, non-medically related, non-medicine, non-drug related? Because we're all worried about opioid abuse, opioid addiction. So can you talk a little bit about neuromodulation and how that works? Sure, yeah. So um, there's really been a significant uptick or increase in attention to these alternative approaches to pain management, uh, things that don't necessarily require medications or pharmacotherapies because, as you mentioned, there's um, so many issues related to side effects and complications and, and what have you with medications. So physicians are interested, and frankly, patients are interested uh, they come in and say, hey, I don't want to be addicted to medications. I don't want to de- be dependent. I don't want interactions, yet I have pain. So we're, we're all interested in alternative approaches. One of the approaches that has really gained a lot of traction and can be very effective is rooted in this concept of, of neuromodulation, uh, like you described. And, and what that means is that uh, we can alter nerve activity. You know, pain signals are sent through nerves. And we could affect that nerve activity by targeting delivery of different stimuli. That can be electrical stimuli. That can be magnetic stimulation. It can be radio frequency. It can even be focused cold, like ice and, and, and cryoblation. But we target delivery of these different stimuli to the nerves to affect how the nerves are sending signals. So essentially, we want to try to turn off pain signals by targeting these different nerves uh, and delivering other kinds of stimuli. So that's what neuromodulation is all about, and it doesn't require medications to have an effect on pain. So some of the various forms of neuromodulation uh, that have been used and used very effectively include things like spinal cord stimulation, where individuals who may have had uh, severe spine and, and extremity pain, maybe they've had um, uh, you know, failed back surgery and they have uh, persistent pain or they have complex regional pain syndrome, other, other kinds of severe neuropathic pains, you can insert uh, an electrode into the spinal cord, spinal canal, and you can stimulate uh, over the spinal cord and dramatically affect or modulate the pain signals that are being sent to the brain, interrupt those pain signals or reduce those pain signals or increase uh, uh, the signals that are modulating uh, in the spinal cord naturally and have a significant effect on pain. So we've seen that over the course of decades, really. Uh, There has been a lot of um, adjustments in in the techniques used, but uh, these things have been more and more effective for more and more kinds of pain. Spinal cord stimulation is one example. Uh, There are other examples. There are peripheral nerve stimulators so that uh, let's say an individual has severe uh, hand pain or foot pain or shoulder pain. Uh, uh, There are ways to implant small devices uh, that stimulate specific nerves and essentially dramatically reduce pain signals that are coming through those nerves so that the individual doesn't have pain. Uh, We are frequently using things like cryoablation where we can Uh, we can essentially freeze a peripheral nerve, and and the freezing of that nerve, the targeted delivery of focused cold, will essentially turn that nerve off and prevent it from sending pain signals 
for months and months at a time. So these are various um, examples of neuromodulation where you can have a dramatic effect on pain, not uh, requiring the use of medications, uh, and, and they can be very, very effective. Vern, when you talk about peripheral nerve stimulators, I guess the one we're most familiar with is the TENS unit. I mean, we've been using that for decades. Are these more sophisticated variations of the TENS unit? You know, they are. Uh, so the TENS unit is an external method of stimulating uh, kind of a, a field or a region or an area. And we've known for decades, like you said, Tony, sure. that TENS can be helpful. It can be applied uh, to an area of interest where a person is having pain and, and they can uh, treat that area for a few minutes or what have you. And it can be helpful. Uh, but what I'm talking about with, with the newer versions of peripheral nerve stimulation uh, is a scenario where you can literally implant a small lead, a tiny little electrode or wire uh, adjacent to a nerve, and everything is under the skin, is implanted in that extremity. And then there's another device that can be uh, uh, placed using adhesive on top of that over the skin when you want to stimulate, and uh, you can stimulate that area and, uh, and get significant pain control and pain relief. So you're right. The concept of neuromodulation and stimulating peripheral nerves has been around for a long time, but technologies have improved and progressively uh, become more specific and more sensitive and what have you over time, such that now uh, a, a tiny little wire or lead can be implanted uh, very easily under the skin adjacent to a nerve and give a dramatic uh, improvement in pain that's very focused. You know, whenever we talk about implants, I guess right away you think, okay, is this going to cause an infection? Am I still going to be able to have an MRI if I need it? Uh, what are some of the obstacles to having these implants done? Yeah, no, so that's a great question and a great point. Uh, for years, for instance, with the spinal cord stimulators, uh, that was an issue sure. uh, because uh, with with those implants, an, an individual is no longer able to have an MRI, particularly in or close to that area where the implanted electrodes were. The newer devices are actually MRI compatible. Uh, and so people can still have MRI studies if they need them, uh, you know, after that implant is done. The other thing is people, um, you know, do get concerned about having this kind of permanent uh, device implanted in their body, but they can be explanted. They can be taken out if the person uh, no longer needs them or if they've had some kind of side effect or, or what have you. So that can be done as well. Uh, anytime you're implanting something in the body, you're obviously going to be concerned with issues related to infection. The infection rate is actually very low with these. Most people, the overwhelming majority of, of people have no issues, but you do want to be particularly careful in individuals who are prone to infection. Uh, and then, of course, there are potential scenarios where there could be some device failure. So uh, someone could have some um, breakage of the lead or maybe a lead stops working. Uh, batteries may need to be replaced. So it's not a, a panacea where you have this one, one procedure done and everything is over forever. Occasionally, people will have to have batteries replaced. Occasionally, there may be some equipment failure. Uh, but by and large, the side effects and complications are far outweighed by the potential benefit of these procedures for the overwhelming majority of people. Vern, getting to that, what's been your experience? I mean, you've been doing this for years. 
And what's been your experience as far as the success rate in people getting adequate relief? And and define adequate relief. Does it mean they're medication-free or lower dose of medication in addition to using neuromodulation? Yeah, so, so another great question. I'll tell you, my... Um my interest and, and the, uh, the, the frequency with which I've recommended these interventions has significantly increased recently, and I'll tell you why. When I first uh, started uh, training in pain management, uh, you know, spinal cord stimulators were being done. In fact, one of my mentors had published a paper on 20 years of spinal cord stimulation uh, and implantation, and this was back in the late 90s. Um, but I will tell you that at that time, uh, the technologies were good, but not nearly as good as they are now. So what we would do is we would have people uh, participate in these uh, temporary uh, trials where individuals would have a temporarily placed, uh, and then we'd want to kind of see if they got sufficient pain relief to justify, uh, you know, the permanent implantation. And we would always say that we wanted people to have at, at least a minimum of, of 60 70% improvement in their pain score. Uh, uh, you know, to justify implantation. Right now, the insurance companies and the manufacturers and, and, and most of the pain societies recommend at least a 50% improvement in pain with a stimulator trial. Uh, there should also be improvement in function, and ideally you want a significant reduction in medications as well. Those are the kinds of parameters that are used. Um, and, and, of course, you know, the, the, you know, the degree of pain relief that justifies an implant may be different from one person to another. And a lot of people with chronic pain will tell you, hey, if I had 30% improvement, uh, you know, that would change my life or it would significantly improve my quality of life. I'd be able to do things that, that I haven't been able to do. But usually the threshold is about a 50% or greater improvement uh, in pain during the trial. And again, our goals are significant reduction or elimination in pain medications. Uh, and so uh, that's what had been kind of the traditional uh, threshold. I will say, though, over time, I mentioned that my um, uh, likelihood of recommending these interventions has changed, and that's because the technologies have become so much better. Uh, there are now different stimulation parameters uh, the frequencies uh, that are uh, that are being uh, you know used to stimulate, for instance, there are now these high frequency stimulators, and the benefits of these procedures and interventions have significantly improved. So, whereas before we were seeing at least 50% improvement uh, and and feeling good about that, now with some of the stimulator trials, we're we're fully expecting 70, 80% improvement of pain scores, uh, along with reduction in. Uh, medications and improvement in function and that kind of thing. So we're not talking about just marginal improvement. Uh, we're talking about, you know, life-changing improvement uh, as, as a goal with these kinds of interventions. Vern, it's, it's truly amazing. Uh, we're chatting with my guest today, Dr. Vernon Williams, and we're chatting about neuromodulation and ways of treating pain without medication and obviously avoiding the use of opiates. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about how do we use a, a technology called transcranial magnetic stimulation. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080.
We're back on Healthy Rounds, and my guest today in this final segment is Dr. Vernon Williams, and he is uh, the Director of Sports Neurology and Pain Management at the Curl and Job Orthopedic Center in Los Angeles. Vern, uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot more about the use of these neuromodulations in the brain, specifically migraine therapy um, and other treatments. Can you talk a little bit about the use of transcranial magnetic stimulation? Sure. So this is really interesting uh, and an area that I think is really transforming a number of their, uh, uh, subspecialties in neurology these days. And, and again, neuromodulation, we talked about applying different stimuli to nerves. That includes nerves within the brain. So we have been talking about pain before, but uh, uh, with respect to this neuromodulation, you can apply stimuli like magnetic stimulation to the brain. So TMS, or transcranial magnetic stimulation, is a way of applying uh, energy to the brain. And the goal is you want to encourage what we call neuroplasticity. So that means that, you know, the brain has the ability to form and reorganize and, uh, and uh, strengthen different synaptic connections. Uh, you can change kind of the brain wave activity and the frequency with which uh, the neurons in the brain are firing. That's called neuroplasticity. And one way to do that is with neuromodulation. Transcranial magnetic stimulation is a form of neuromodulation. So all that uh, uh, being said, what we're doing is we're stimulating the brain through the skull. So there does not have to be anything inserted into the brain. You don't need to burr hole or you don't need to, uh, uh, you know, have any kind of penetration whatsoever. But just by placing this, this magnetic coil over various parts of the brain, you can stimulate and have an effect on the cortex and have an effect on nerve function. This kind of technology has been um, around for, for a while, for over a decade, and it was first approved by the FDA in the treatment of individuals with refractory depression. So these are people who have had uh, severe depression. Uh, the depression has persisted despite trials of various medications, multiple different kinds of medications, psychotherapy, sometimes hospitalization. These were people who were really, really struggling, and nothing was really helping them. And it turns out that if you stimulated a specific part of the brain with the magnetic stimulation, their depression would improve. And so on the basis of uh, the clinical trials we'll have you in depression, uh, this type of therapy was uh, approved by the FDA for refractory depression, refractory anxiety, and has been very effective in a large number of individuals who, who failed other treatments. Since then, there's been significant interest in applying the same technology for other conditions. And so you mentioned migraine headache. It turns out that if you stimulate the brain repetitively with magnetic stimulation, you can have a significant effect on migraine. And we've also seen studies published in the literature uh, for various conditions like ADD or ADHD, uh, individuals who, uh, who've had uh, autism spectrum disorder, uh, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and people with post-concussive symptoms. So the FDA indication is for refractory depression and anxiety, and also there's an indication for migraine. But what we've seen is we've seen tremendous um, expansion and interest 
in treating other conditions with this particular type of neuromodulation. So getting into that a little bit, one of the things, now we had lunch together in Los Angeles, and there are very few things that shock me, okay? And one of those was your experience treating people who were addicted to opiates for chronic pain. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about how you've been able to use TMS effectively in helping people get off opiates? Yeah, so this was something that uh, you're right. I could look in your eyes and, and look at your face and see uh, your look when I was describing my experience with patients uh, with chronic pain using TMS. I, I had the same uh, feeling and, and look when I would see some of these individuals for follow-up uh, and, and, and during their course of TMS because I, I just had, you know, a tremendous outcome with, with a number of patients who who were very difficult patients, had severe chronic pain. So uh, just to review, these were individuals who had uh, severe head injury and head pain, uh, headache pain, individuals who had severe spine-related pain. Some of them had uh, failed neck surgery or back surgery. They were on high doses of opioid medications, and uh, many of them had been off work not only for months but for years uh, dealing with their chronic pain conditions. And, uh, and so uh, in a, a pilot study, we were able to treat about 15 of those individuals uh, with transcranial magnetic stimulation. And what we saw was, uh, you know, it was almost miraculous. We saw individuals have dramatic reduction in their pain scores. We saw individuals have significant improvement in their mood, but ultimately, and, and perhaps most importantly, dramatic reduction in their opioid use. So people dramatically reduced or completely eliminated the use of all pain medications. That means no more narcotic medications, opioid medications, all of the, sign, uh, of the symptoms and side effects associated with those things were gone because they said, hey, we don't need them anymore. We were able to reduce them, continue to reduce them, and, and eliminate them. And, uh, uh, you know, ultimately, many of those people were able to go back to work uh, be much more functional, significant improvement in quality of life. And, and that was my initial experience with TMS for, uh, for chronic pain. Now, since then, I've, you know, treated a number of, of individuals with similar kinds of symptoms, seen, uh, uh, again, these same kinds of results. And it is something that's quite amazing. I will say that uh, I believe part of the benefit has to do with a significant improvement in mood. Uh, because we know there's a significant relationship between chronic pain and depression, chronic pain and anxiety, uh, chronic pain and other emotional disorders or what have you. I think that there may be a significant improvement related to uh, the, sleep, the sleep benefits associated with TMS. So often what we see as we treat people with this particular form of TMS is that their sleep significantly improves. And we're learning more and more all the time about uh, the positive benefits of uh, improved sleep and treating disordered sleep. And then, uh, you know, clearly there's some effect on their pain uh, as well. So I think the benefit is multifactorial, but the benefit is, uh, is unmistaken. Uh, we've seen significant um, improvements in a, a number of areas treating uh, chronic pain patients with transcranial magnetic stimulation. Vern, I have to tell you, I you know, we met months ago, and I'm still impressed by this technology. And we want to continue following up with this uh, with you. And 
really, our listeners should bring this up. If you're in a pain management program um, with your physician, bring up the possibility of transcranial magnetic stimulation. Because, Vern, side effects from TMS, are there? Well, well, you know, another good point. These uh, treatments tend to be very well tolerated. There are occasional scenarios where people can say, well, I, I felt a little head pressure or a little uh, headache you know, temporarily after a treatment. And uh, just to review, these treatments uh, come in series of you know, 20 to 25 treatments. Each treatment is probably 30 to 35 minutes in duration. Uh, but occasionally people will have a little bit of headache after one. But self-limited and, and goes away within minutes. A low risk of seizure with a transcranial magnetic stimulation. However, the stimulation intensity, uh, the location and duration of, of stimulation uh, is, is such that you can significantly reduce that risk. And unless an individual has a predisposition to seizure, uh, that's very, very, very low risk. And again, this is more theoretical than us yeah. actually seeing it very much in practice. But it's a very safe, uh, well-tolerated procedure. And in general, uh, you know, the the side effects are, are minimal, self-limited, and far outweighed by the benefits. I was going to say, certainly a lot less risky than being on chronic opiates. Um, well, for, for certain, for sure. No, yeah. no question about yeah. that. Vern, thank you. Thanks for spending time with us today, and, and we're going to continue to follow up on this uh, technology. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko, has been on the board, and Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast and download it from iTunes, and you can revisit today's program. Uh, next week, we will be using a best-of program since I will be on the road. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.